0: Hello everyone. My name is JB Hickson with NBW Ministries proclaiming the clear, accurate and urgent gospel message from my humble studio beneath the sky nestled in the tall timbers of Colorado. Thank you for joining us. It is Monday, September 4th, 2023. Happy Labor Day everyone. I hope you have a great day planned. Get hopefully get some downtime to spend with family and friends. I'm in my office uh, today, kind of catching up on things, uh, lots of uh uh, activity uh, coming up this week and in the weeks to come as we look forward to a wonderful fall and winter season together here at uh, the ministry. Uh, we're going to be doing today Episode 8 of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. Thanks for your patience. We did not have one of these episodes last week because I was... Um, I called away at a last-minute conference there with uh, Tom Hughes and hope for our times and uh, really enjoyed that great uh, great conference. Uh, but we're back on track this week. Got a great week ahead. I've got Brad Mastin on uh, tomorrow to talk about Christian education in a non-Christian world. We'll be talking about what the Bible has to say about Christian education, everything from uh, homeschooling, uh, you know, secondary and, and, and uh, primary education, uh, college education, you name it. Uh, Always enjoy talking to Brad. Wednesday, we'll be back on track with Randy for World Events Update. Uh, At least, Lord willing, you know, last week we had to do it on Thursday because we had some construction uh, here at the office on our regular Wednesday. But we're on schedule for Wednesday this week, Lord willing. And then later this week, I'll have uh, my good friend and technologist Shane on, and we'll get an update on AI and all that's going on there. We're calling that The Ethical and Moral Dark Ages Are Upon Us. So look forward to that later this week. But by now, you've probably heard the new book is available to purchase. Spirit of the False Prophet. Spirit of the False is the best place to send people for that. And Brooke also created a one minute outstanding promotional video that is posted at our website. It's, I think, in the third spot on the highlight carousel at notbyworks.org. Just go to notbyworks.org and scroll through those highlight banners, and you'll see it there. Highly encourage you to repost that wherever you can on social media. Send it to people. It definitely kind of introduces you to the themes that we talk about in the new book and uh, directs people to uh, the website where they can get that. So check out the video. Check out the book. Uh, Those books uh, should start to ship within the next week or two. And uh, you can go ahead and purchase it now. Those who purchase uh, now we'll ship them in, in the order in which the orders are received. So you'll get yours, uh, uh, sooner, uh the sooner you order it. But anyway, uh, really appreciate your prayers for that. Really excited about the book. I'll be on uh, Tom Hughes later today and hope for our times uh, uh, talking about the book. Uh, we've got some interviews scheduled with Prophecy Watchers later this week. Don't know when those will air, but uh, we're going to be traveling to Oklahoma City to record those. And uh, lots, just lots of great things uh, coming up. Appreciate your prayers uh, for our family and pray that the Lord will use this book, as always, to uh, spread the gospel and to awaken the body of Christ uh, to these uh, great last days of deception, uh, which are all around us. So with that, let me dive in here. I'll try to get through as many questions as I can. The first question is about the Amish and the Mennonites. Uh, do they believe in a works-based salvation? Yes, I'm sad to say they do. Uh, great people. Um, I've interacted with them. You probably have too. But the fact of the matter is, they definitely believe that you can lose your salvation and that you must work to keep your salvation and um, I am sure, I would I would assume anyway, that people that grow up around a Bible-centered culture, probably many of them are actually saved. At some point in their journey, they heard and understood and believed the pure and simple grace message. But as a religious system, they definitely teach a works-based uh, system. The next question here is about uh, Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, the idea here is, does that teach that you can lose your salvation? So let me give you a quick, um, oh, just sort of uh, rundown on that. I've talked about Hebrews 6 a lot uh, on the program and in different contexts. But uh, since the question came in, I'll take this opportunity to clarify it again. So in uh, Hebrews uh, the, the writer is writing to a uh, Jewish-believing community that was under intense persecution by Nero in the late 60s A.D., and they were contemplating abandoning their faith, literally turning their backs on the Lord in order to save their lives. And the writer says, no, no, don't do that. I know you may have to suffer incredible persecution, but the reward is great. You'll be rewarded heavily in the kingdom Um He gives examples of other great men and women of the faith who've suffered great persecution. Uh, And he says, just keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Don't uh, turn from uh, the faith. And so in the context of that letter, there are five different so-called warning passages where the writer gets pretty stern with his readers. And one of those is in chapter 6. All of these are addressed to believers. These are not telling you how to get saved. And they're not telling you you can lose your salvation, contrary to what some people suggest as this uh, questioner uh, asked about. But in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened, that's a phrase that definitely refers to believers, they've tasted the heavenly gift, again, they're born again, they've become partakers of the Holy Spirit, again, no question, these are believers, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. It is impossible if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of god and put him to an open shame so several observations here first of all it says nothing about heaven or hell people assume when it says they cannot that it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance it means they're going to go to hell it's not at all what that means repentance just means a change of mind and what the writer is saying here is that when a person gets to the place where they make a decisive emphatic volitional intentional decision to turn from the god and they say I'm washing my hands of of the lord I'm I don't want to assemble together with believers anymore remember hebrews 10:25 he says do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together but if they get to that point then it there's no changing their mind repentance means a change of mind and it is impossible if they get to that point of apostasy of of falling away if you will uh, uh, then 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 you're you know it's impossible to renew them again to repentance it does not say it's impossible for them to be renewed by the way uh, God if he's willing as it says in verse 3 can do anything and God may call them back but at some point you know you just have to leave them in the Lord's hands as Paul did with other believers in in, in other places in scripture that we that we read about so so um, so yeah, that's this is not no no mention of heaven or hell here. He does go on to use an analogy about you know briars and thorns versus good herbs, and the briars and thorns are useless in a garden, so you bundle them up and burn them, and and good herbs are useful and bring bring blessing. But that's not a reference to hell. You know some people think anytime you see the word fire, it's a reference to hell, but I mean Hebrew says our God is a consuming fire, and that's certainly not a reference. Uh, to hell. So yeah, Hebrews 6 simply doesn't mention heaven or hell. It's not talking about threatening believers with eternal damnation if they fall away. It's just saying there's serious consequences if you do. Next question here is about the uh, Enneagram. Now this is really uh, interesting. Uh, um, If you've not heard of this, it's a sort of a personality inventory or a temperament analysis inventory, that kind of thing. Enneagram. It's spelled E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M. I dealt with this so a couple of years ago. It's been now, Um, and I do have grave concerns about it. The Enneagram has its origins in the occult and New Age philosophy, and I would stay away from it. It's not a helpful tool. I'm not one of these that. Is you know is against using good practical tools to kind of help you understand yourself a little bit better. Like I've used the disc profile before in, in classes, it can be helpful and it's got some biblical principles behind it. But the enneagram, uh, to me, crosses a line and I would not recommend it. Uh, here is a question. Let's see about Christmas and Easter. Uh, being pagan holidays, and should we practice them? Uh, I don't have a problem with it at all. Uh, there are a lot of Christian practices that were co-opted by pagan religions, and that's the case with uh, the birth of our Savior and the resurrection of, of our Lord. Uh, and even though they, you know, the terms Christ's Mass or Christmas and Easter have origins in pagan terminology, it doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate those events Um so I would definitely, uh, you know, not, you know, I wouldn't practice some of the pagan aspects of it. Like we never did the Santa Claus thing with our children and that kind of stuff. But, you know, certainly celebrating the birth of our Savior. And as I've dealt with elsewhere, we do know that He was born in the winter time, in the winter of 5, 4 BC. Uh, so it's a good time of year to celebrate it. We don't know the exact date, but there's, You know, the fact that that's when the pagans picked to celebrate their pagan ritual doesn't mean we can't use the same time of year to celebrate the birth of our Savior. This person in the email kind of likens it to practicing yoga, but I see a huge difference there. Uh, I would never practice yoga because it is once and for all only a pagan practice. It's not like they stole some Christian practice and turned it into a pagan practice uh, like they did with Christmas and Easter. So those are my thoughts about that. I'm trying to go a little bit more quickly here just so we can get to more questions without elaborating too much but much more can be said about about all of these. Here's a question about how do we know that hell is a place of eternal torment? Well, it's quite clear in scripture that we will be tor- unbelievers who don't don't accept the free gift of salvation in Christ will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's not ambiguous. Um And this person says, well, it talks about perishing and destruction. Well, perishing and destruction, depending on the context, can mean physical destruction, and it can also mean eternal punishment. So context has to determine meaning, but there's no question that hell is an eternal place of torment. And then they asked a follow-up question here on a separate subject about some, you know, they mentioned some names of some teachers here. And they said that one of them suggests repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. What do I think about that? Well, it depends how you define repentance. And coincidentally, I'm going to be speaking about uh, repentance this Sunday at Plum Creek Chapel as we continue our study through Nehemiah. I'll be in chapters 9 and 10. I'm going to kind of conflate them together and uh, talk about this idea of repentance. Uh, I, I do this whenever I can because repentance is one of those misunderstood you know, topics in scripture. When we went through the book of Acts recently at Plum Creek, I dedicated one uh, sermon when it came up in the context of Acts to explaining what repentance is. So we're going to do that again here with uh, Nehemiah. But repentance just means a change of mind. And so if you use you, you know and and sometimes on rare occasions the bible does use the term repentance to speak of our salvation experience that when we place our faith in jesus christ uh to receive eternal life that in itself is a change of mind we've changed our mind about whatever else we thought was going to save us and instead we are trusting in jesus christ we've changed our mind but most people, when they say repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, what they mean, and I happen to know the the, the, the Bible teacher that this person references here, and this is what they mean by it. They mean that it's that it's two steps, that step one, you turn from all your sins, and step two, you believe. And that is emphatically wrong, that there's no question that you don't have to turn from your sins to be saved. If we could get saved because we forsake all of our sins and and clean up our lives, then Jesus didn't have to die. It's precisely because we can't clean up our lives. We can't turn from our sins without the indwelling Holy Spirit that we need to receive Christ's righteousness as a free gift. So salvation is a free gift. It is not something that we earn by turning away from our sins. So repentance as it relates to eternal salvation is limited to a change of mind about Christ. Uh, You can change your mind about sin, and you should do that. You should turn from your sins if you're a believer. Sin is terrible. It's awful. It's going to lead to great unpleasantness. It has serious consequences. But that's not how you get saved. You don't become a born-again Christian because you turned from your sins. Um, The next question here is about the rapture in Matthew 24. 31 uh, they said some people suggest that's the rapture it's not and uh, it's very clear from the context uh, in Matthew 24 this is Jesus Olivet discourse verse 29 says immediately after the tribulation of those days. And it goes on to say, the people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of trumpet. And they will gather together his his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Verse 31. So, you know, verse 31, there is not a reference to the rapture. It's a reference to regathering the elect the nation of Israel is who Jesus is talking about there in fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy again and again every prophet mentions this regathering into land when Christ comes back to inaugurate the messianic kingdom passages like Deuteronomy 30 verse 3 Isaiah 27:13 Ezekiel 36 talks about it so um not the rapture at all it's the second coming it's after the tribulation as the context makes clear because it mentions a trumpet some people say oh this must be the rapture because there's a trumpet there well uh, there are lots of trumpets in Scripture. There are seven trumpets that announce judgments of God in the tribulation. There were trumpets uh, involved in the battle of Jericho. I mean, uh, there are lots of trumpets. So there, there's a trumpet at the rapture and there's a trumpet of the second coming, but they're not the same thing. And Matthew 24, 31 is definitely the second coming and the regathering of Israel into the land. Um, here's a, a question about the quality of faith. Um and this comes from uh, someone who evidently uh, suggested, or thinks that I suggested, believers cannot, you know, pray for uh, the Lord to increase their faith. He absolutely, we absolutely should. So here's the thing to remember: when it comes to getting saved, an unbeliever does not have to have a certain quality of faith to get saved. It's just faith in the right object. When faith meets the gospel, the result is eternal life every time. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead to save you from your sin, and you're trusting in him to save you, you're saved. You get the gift of eternal life. So it's the faith the size of a mustard seed. Even a child can understand it. But once you get saved as a believer, we absolutely uh, you know, can have a quality of faith. The Bible speaks of believers having rich faith or poor faith, weak faith or strong faith, a steadfast faith or wavering faith, even having no faith. You can actually stop believing <laughs> as a believer. And Paul says, when you do, God will still um, you know, not deny you because he can't deny himself. You're a child of God. We don't get saved because we promise to keep believing until we die. Uh, that would be a contradiction of what Jesus said many times over. He says, verily, verily, I say unto you, you, if you believe in me, you have everlasting life, present tense, and you shall never perish, uh, period, John, John ten twenty eight. 28. So, uh, you know, the, the believer's faith absolutely is a matter of quality. And the whole goal of the Christian life is to strengthen our faith, to walk by faith, and to increase our faith. So, uh, and, you know, this person correctly identifies, for example, Hebrews 12, 2, where we're to look to Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter, the maturer of our faith that can continue to trust in him. But you don't get saved by having a certain kind of faith. You get saved by having the right object of faith. And then as a believer, we can strengthen our faith and have quality of faith to a greater or lesser degree. The next question here is about 1 John chapter 3. And this person uh, says, they keep hearing people say that if you keep on Sinning, or if you practice sin, or if you habitually sin, you're not saved. And they mention a couple of names of some Bible teachers who suggest that. Uh, I'm not going to mention those names, but I I'm aware of this, and I would say it's uh, it's sad. You know, they're 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 wrong. I mean that with all grace, uh, but a lot of people misunderstand uh, the book of 1 John. They think it's a test of how to know whether you're going to heaven or not. There's only one test to know whether you're going to heaven, and that's whether you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. If you look to your works and your behavior to determine if you're going to heaven, you're going to doubt your salvation every day. And to doubt your salvation is to question the promise of Christ who said, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. 1 John is not a book about how to know whether you're going to heaven. It's a book about how to know whether you're in fellowship with the Lord. Abiding in Christ means to remain in close fellowship with Him, to stick close to Jesus so that you can have that intimacy and uh, be rewarded and blessed and so forth. Like I talked about yesterday at Plum Creek Chapel, you know, it's it's being doers of the Word that brings blessing, not just hearing uh, the Word. And so 1 John 3 never says habitually sins or practices sins. That's a bad translation uh, from... You know certain modern English translations. The key verse here is First John chapter three, verse six, and, and I'm going to read some some bad translations first. The NIV says, "No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning," <laughs> and uh, you know I think the ESV says. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning <laughs> uh, but that's completely false. Um, you know you, you, you don't it doesn't say keeps on sinning or practices sin or habitually sins as someone uh, some translations say. it simply says sins. So let me read it from the New King James, which is a literal uh, translation. First uh, John chapter 3. Verse 4, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. There's zero sin in Christ. So therefore, it goes on to say, verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Notice there's no habitual or practice there. It's just sin. It's a present active indicative verb. Pretty simple, basic grammar here. And sadly, modern English translations have brought their Calvinistic uh, tone to the text in their translation and made it seem like if you're continuing to sin a lot or if you're habitually sinning or practicing sin, then you're not a Christian. But that's not what the text says at all. It says you cannot be abiding in Christ and sinning at the same time, period. Uh, you know, It's not the new nature that causes us to sin. If you're in close fellowship with Christ, if you're walking in the Spirit, not after the flesh, it's not going to produce sin in your life. It's what Galatians 5 is all about. If you cater to the flesh, guess what? You're going to produce sin. If you cater to the Spirit, guess what? You're going to produce righteousness, period. So if you're sinning, you're not abiding in Christ. You're not walking with Christ in that moment. The born of God part of us never sins. And he goes on to talk about how, you know, uh, he who sins is of the devil. Absolutely. Sin is always sourced in the old man and, and the devil, the the you know the, the fleshly nature. Uh, he goes on to say, whoever has been born of God does not sin, period. Again, that's verse 9, but, you know, people... Uh, mistakenly uh, you know based on modern English translations like the NIV says no one who is born of God will continue to sin well guess what Everybody listening to this program, if you're a Christian, you continue to sin. You sin every day. Does that mean you're not a Christian? Of course not. Uh, you, you should stop sinning. You should overcome sin. You should walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh. You should yield to the Holy Spirit and produce the fruit of the Spirit. But the fact is, as long as we're topside this earth, we're still going to sin. And so 1 John 3 is not suggesting anything about the habitual nature of sin that's a complete mistranslation of uh the text esv is even worse esv of first john 3 9 says no one born of god makes a practice of sinning <laughs> well listen i guarantee you there are sins that you will commit today that you committed yesterday could be lust jealousy covetousness anger you know cussing you you name it um that sounds like a practice of sinning to me. And what John is saying is when you do that, when you sin, not practice sin, but when you sin in any degree, you're not abiding in Christ. So If you want to abide in Christ, you know, produce the fruit of the flesh by yielding to the Spirit and living out the new nature. So hopefully that helps clarify why I think uh, those folks are are, are, are incorrect. Um, here's a question about the word uh Life or soul, as it's sometimes translated uh, in uh, Scripture. Um, let's see. Uh, the question here is about the end of the book of James, where James says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death. Well, the word soul uh, in the context here uh, you know, does not mean... Uh, you know, eternal, immaterial aspect of man. The word soul is the Greek word psuche, and like all words, it has to be interpreted in context. And psuche can mean the eternal aspect of man, but more often than not, it just means the physical aspect of life. In fact, it's usually translated that way in the Bible. The word uh, psuche appears, uh, let me see here, uh, 105 times in the New Testament, and several times it's, you know, referring to, just physical uh, life. For example, in, in Acts, uh, at the when they were on the shipwreck, Paul said in chapter 27, verse 22, I urge you to take heart. There will be no loss of life among you. Again, that's psuche. Um, he says, uh, I perceive this voyage will end in disaster, uh, not only of the cargo, but also of our lives. Again, psuche. Uh, Paul said, uh, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life, dear uh to myself or acts 15 those who have risked their lives for the name of the lord jesus christ so soul just means life in this context that would be a better translation in fact it does not mean eternally and so james is saying if you help turn a brother from sin you might save his life because james said in chapter one that sin leads to death when it's full grown so hey we ought to help people that are sinning Uh, change their lives and and, and stop sinning because we might save their life from death. That's the idea there. Thanks for that question. Good question, by the way. Um, uh, This person asks for a recommendation about a dictionary, not a Bible dictionary, but a regular old Webster's dictionary because when the internet shuts down, we may not have access to an internet dictionary. That's a great point and good reminder. I mentioned that in chapter... Nine or I forget what chapter is in the new book, but I talk about the importance of having physical books because they can just simply, you know, change the, the the digital stuff with a click of a button. As far as which dictionary, I would just get an old one. The older the dictionary, the better because they're already printing new dictionaries with weird words. I saw how Webster's has a new and um, meaning for gender. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, you want to stick with the old dictionaries if you can, and a print one is a good idea. <clears throat> Um, so let's see, this question is uh, about alcohol. (laughs) I'm surprised I don't get more questions about this. Um, this person seems to be coming from an abstinence viewpoint. I think it's a wisdom issue. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's between them and the Lord, the Bible. Absolutely. You cannot support a all alcohol is sin view from Scripture because uh, he uh, Ephesians uses the word wine and says don't get drunk from it. And Paul uses that same exact word in Greek and tells Paul uh, Timothy to drink some of it. So whatever he told Timothy to drink, you could certainly get drunk from it. And whatever Jesus turned the water into, same word, you could get drunk from it. It was wine that you could get drunk from. So uh, I'm not advocating Uh, For alcohol, I think there's a wisdom issue there, and it certainly, uh, the Bible definitely forbids getting drunk. That's a sin, a moral command, an absolute. But to say that the Bible teaches that taking a single sip of alcohol means you're sinning is simply naive, quite frankly. People try to say, well, it was just grape juice. Well, it wasn't grape juice. You could get drunk from it. Uh, That's what the Bible says. So whatever he told timothy to drink you could get drunk from it so he he was telling timothy sometimes alcohol has medicinal purposes so i would just leave that issue of alcohol and up to individual believers but i can tell you that it is a stronghold that it can destroy lives and uh but i just i'm thinking theologically here and you simply cannot support an all alcohol is sin perspective at least not based on the Bible that I read. Uh, and then uh, here's a question about Adam and Eve. Didn't God understand that Adam and Eve would sin? Well, absolutely. He knew. He's all-knowing. And this gets into Romans 11 and the fact that we don't have the mind of God and and, and His ways are you know beyond finding out. And, and so we just trust that God is sovereign and yet man has uh, free will. They also ask a question about fasting. And my answer to that would be... Um, they want to know. Is there good resources on it? I don't have any at the at my fingertips, but the Bible is a great resource on all of these things. But I would just be careful to remember that, uh, you know, fasting. Uh, there are Levitical laws and ritualistic laws in the Old Testament about fasting. We're not under the law, but I think fasting is a great a practice that can draw us closer to the Lord, but you would want to follow it according to you know biblical suggestions. You see it in the New Testament as well, but don't be legalistic about it. I've run across believers who think that, you know, if you're not fasting, you're breaking the law and you should, you're should you in sin and all of that. I, I think it's a great tool that the Lord has used and can use, but, you know, let the Bible be your guide on that regard. Uh, this is a question about how... Uh, where people will live during the kingdom. Will raptured believers of the church age live in Jerusalem? Uh, you know, uh, they said, you know, since we're, we're never going to be separated from Jesus anymore. Well, I don't think that means that we're going to be within an arm's length of Jesus. I mean, that's a that would be impossible, frankly. But I just think it means we're going to have that intimacy with him, never to be separated again. But we can come and go. And I think we'll be able to travel the globe and come and go from the new heaven and the new earth uh, in uh, in eternity. Uh, this is a question about the rapture. Will everyone, believers and non-believers alike, hear the shout and the sound of the trumpet? Boy, that's a tough one. I, I know people that think probably yes. Uh, I could go either way. I I think the fact that it happens in the twinkling of an eye uh, means that it's going to be instantaneous. Um, that's just a tough, tough one. I don't think I can give a definitive answer uh, off the top of my head, at least not that Scripture gives us. Um, It seems like, given the mystery nature of the rapture and the mystery nature of the church, that it would be a blessing only for the church, and that's what I've taught before. But I wouldn't necessarily die, uh, you know, on that hill. Um, Here's a question I chuckled at. What's going on with Trump? Uh, Is it all a show on both sides, or what's going on? Well, I've certainly talked about Donald Trump at length in Spirit of the Antichrist Volume 2. I have a whole section entitled, uh, How Does Donald Trump Fit in all, into All of This? Um, I, for the life of me, can't figure out what's going on with all of these uh, arrests and charges. But know this, he is a pawn in the game, no question. The people that hitch their wagon to Trump like he's some kind of a, you know, uh hero or or white hat or whatever, you're completely deceived. I, I mean that <laughs> lovingly. I'm sorry to be so harsh, but, you know, Trump is not the savior. He was a pawn in the game. He was selected in 2016. He didn't surprise the Luciferians by winning a populist vote. We don't have votes. We have selections. Uh, he was put in place intentionally as a pawn in the game to roll out the control of virus scandemic and uh, to oversee the uh uh, the, the gene-altering bioinjections with Operation Warp Speed. Not saying he's a winning partner in it. I think he has his own motivations, and cert- certainly he's a man of great ego, as I've talked about in my books. But I think he was a pawn in the game what's going on now, regardless of what you think about Trump, it's a travesty when our government begins to arrest political opponents. I mean, that's, you know, bizarre. You know, you can get away with multiple felonies and murders like the Clintons and Bidens and you don't get arrested, but you question an election, which was clearly rigged. I mean, 2020 was rigged, no question. What people don't understand is that 2016 was rigged too, but, uh, in any event, I, I find it really troubling that we're arresting political candidates, even though, as you know, I'm not a fan of Trump. Uh, but I can't figure out what's going to happen. I think we're just going to have to wait and see. 2024 is going to be an interesting year. Uh, I'll know, I'll have a better guess anyway at what how this plays into the Luciferian conspiracy after more time has gone by and we kind of see how things shake out. That is, of course, if the Lord hasn't come back yet. Uh, but for now, it's it's beyond me. I, I don't know what role they're playing, It's but I can assure you this, it's not organic. It is synthetic. This is all for show. It's good theater, and it's fun to watch, that's for sure. Um, here's a question about uh, the New Jerusalem, similar to the last question that we had, um, where will people live during the New heavens and the new earth. I think that God's people will all be together. We'll have different roles to play. The church certainly will be co-reigning with Christ. Those who earn that privilege uh, at the bema. The other, you know, the Old Testament saints—Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David—will be reigning on the throne. There'll be, uh, you know, uh, different roles to play. But I think we'll be interacting. I don't think there's going to be necessarily a clear segregation in terms of geography as to where everybody is in the kingdom. Uh, Here's a question in my uh, episode 28 of The Time Is Now. I showed a chart of Daniel's 490-year plan. Why in the chart do you multiply the 483 years by 360 days? Oh, that's simple. The, the Jewish calendar had 360 days in it. D- Daniel was was writing based on the Jewish calendar. Uh, of course, looking back, we know cur- currently now in the way we reckon time, we have, our year has 365 days, but Daniel's calendar didn't. Daniel's calendar only had 360 days in a year. So if we look at the You know, the the math there, we use 360 days. They also asked, what is dispensationalism? Dispensationalism is a term to describe a theological framework based on Ephesians chapter 3 and the word dispensation that's used in Scripture. And dispensationalism simply means that based on a literal, grammatical, historical understanding of Scripture, we conclude... Uh, That the Bible teaches there's a distinction between Israel and the church. That God has a plan for Israel like we were just talking about with the 490-year plan that Daniel gives. And he has a plan for the church. And they're not the same thing. The church has not replaced Israel. And when you understand the Bible literally, grammatically, and historically, that's the only conclusion you can come to. So the church will be rescued before the the, uh, 70th week of Daniel. And the Israel, you know, Christ will come back literally at the end of the tribulation. The church will come back with him, and he will inaugurate the long-awaited earthly uh, kingdom, the Messianic kingdom, on earth. Uh, here is a question about mind soul spirit and heart what's the difference well mind and heart are the same thing they're used interchangeably contrary to what a lot of people think uh, you know they'll say oh you can believe something in your mind but you have to believe it in your heart not true i have a whole uh, study that i've done on that i'd be glad to send it to people showing you both old and new testament alike that the words in hebrew and greek for mind and heart are used interchangeably sometimes even in the same sentence so Clearly, mind and heart are just two ways of saying the same thing. It's the seat of the of our emotions and our volition and our thoughts, right? The mind, heart, uh, and so uh, that's mind and heart. Soul and spirit are refer to the immaterial aspect of man. The soul uh, again can mean, in certain contexts, the whole being, the physical life, uh, meaning your flesh and blood. But in the context of this question, it's referring to That, you know, immaterial part of us that makes up the mind, the will, the emotions, and the spirit is that immaterial part of us that communicates with God. It's born dead, Ephesians two one. It must be made alive. We must be born again by faith. And then, uh, so then we're made alive and we have eternal life. Uh, so you know, the, Bi- the, the Bible teaches what I believe is a bipartite view of man. It's material and immaterial. Those are the two parts. The material is simple. That's the physical bones, the the blood, the flesh, the the, you know, all of that, the physicality. The immaterial part is the, you know, mind, will, the emotions, the spirit what's often referred to as the soul and spirit in that context and so uh, great question, hope that helps uh, a little bit. Uh, This next question is another question about fasting I would refer you to what I said just a moment ago about fasting, great practice but just make sure that you uh, you know recognize it's not a requirement or a legalistic thing. Tithing, same thing. Uh, they asked about tithing. Tithing in the Old Testament was a law. You had to do it. It was part of the way people interacted with God. It wasn't necessary to get to heaven, but it was like all of their festivals and feasts and sacrifices, something that they did as part of their religion. Uh, every year they gave 20% of their annual income because they had two tithes each year, every year. So, gave 10% once, and then again, later in the year, 10% again. And then every third year, they added a third tithe. So, that year, they were giving 30% of their annual income. So, a, a, a tithe in the Jewish culture meant twenty, an average of 23 and a third percent of your income goes to support the priests and so forth. So uh we're not under the law today uh in the new testament we're told to give not grudgingly not compulsively or under compulsion i should say but rather willingly and graciously so i believe the local church is the primary avenue of giving and uh that's the way god fulfills the great commission and you ought to give to the local church but there's no legalistic amount it's not like if you give less than 10 percent, somehow you are sinning that's not the case um Let's see. This is a great question here. Just uh, reminds me of what heaven's going to be like. They said, you know, we know heaven's going to be free from sorrow and sadness but and physical pain and defects. But will we also be free from broken relationships? And, you know, they talk about parents, siblings, nephews, um, you know. Yeah, I mean, what a great thing that's going to be in heaven. All of those broken and strained relationships that we have now will be restored and perfected in heaven if they're believers now if they're not believers then they won't be there Um, but heaven is a place of perfect peace and bliss and so whatever heartaches and struggles and tensions and fears and anxieties and pains and sorrows that we have they're left behind when we meet our savior face to face um Here's a person asking about foreknowledge, election, predestination, and the like. Uh, Those are all similar terms that have a correlation, but they're not the same. They're technical terms in Scripture. Foreknowledge, of course, refers to God's ability to know the future. It doesn't mean that He takes a sneak peek at what somebody else wrote. He actually wrote it all because He's the only eternal being. God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and He spoke the world into existence. But His foreknowledge just means that He sees ahead. Uh, election means that he chose, that he's sovereign, uh, you know, and I've never had a problem with election. Uh, I've spoken extensively about Calvinism, written books about it. I, my problem with Calvinism isn't the view of election. It's the fact that election becomes uh, so supreme and they exclude free will. My view is that the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches free will, whosoever will make come, but it also teaches election. I don't know how to reconcile those except that the Bible teaches them both. So anyone on earth can be saved. Calvinists teach, no, you can't. Only the elect can be saved. If you're not elect, you're out of luck. (laughs) And uh, you have no choice in the matter. You can't believe the gospel no matter how bad you want to. You can't go to heaven if you're not elect. I believe Anybody can go to heaven if they believe the gospel. And election, at the end of the day, only those who are elect will believe. But we don't. We're not marked with an E on our forehead. We don't know who's elect. And the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance, all change their mind about Christ. And so, uh, I take the Bible at its word: Whosoever will may may come. Uh predestination is a third term that's similar but has a different nuance. It has to do with being marked out for a purpose. And whom God has called and chosen, he has predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's our our goal is to ultimately be made Christ-like. Not that we become gods, but that we are sinless uh, and the righteousness of Christ is imputed us. Uh, to us so hopefully that helps i know that's a short answer but you know these are some pretty heavy questions we could do a whole semester and i have when i taught soteriology on election predestination and foreknowledge um this uh this is the same question here about predestination so i had those put together for that reason so uh the next question is about the tree of life uh great question what's going on with the tree of life in you know the book of revelation well uh you know the tree of life essentially is uh you know almost like a metaphor i believe it's a literal tree but it's it's used to refer to immortality that's why you had the tree of life in the garden before sin and, and adam and eve had physicality they were in their physical body so they would literally eat from the tree of life in the in the eternal state you know people often wonder since the tree of life's going to be there will we eat well we'll have our glorified bodies, so we won't have like the need for digestion and all of that. But, you know, I think they could eat, but as someone has pointed out, it's kind of like, you know, a rose, you know, you can enjoy a rose, but you're not suffering if you don't enjoy a rose. Right. So everybody's going to enjoy the eternal bliss of heaven, but there will be this tree there, as we read about in revelation 22, uh, two, and also later in that chapter, um, we read about it as well. So, uh, You know the the tree of life again uh, is just it's there as a reference to the the source of eternal life, and that's why Adam and Eve got kicked out of heaven after they fell, and uh, and so we will have access to that tree of life for all of eternity in uh, in heaven. Here's a question about the assemblies of God. and whether or not they believe you can lose your salvation, this person's correct. They do believe that. Uh, that's wrong. I, I respect the Assemblies of God. I've spoken in some of their churches. They have pretty good eschatology that I would agree with, but they're, they're wrong about their understanding of uh, gifts of the Spirit uh, and especially in their understanding of salvation, that, that you can lose it. Uh, you can't lose it. Uh, you know, if you could lose it, then really it makes what Jesus did on the cross inconsequential. But Jesus said, I give you eternal life, and you shall never perish. And, and he meant that. So we're not saved by works, and we don't keep our salvation by works. Uh, so I just have an honest disagreement, and a pretty important one, with the Assemblies of God on that issue. This person attended the Rockwall conference last weekend and uh, asked uh, uh about the controlling the, the families at the top tier of the Luciferian conspiracy. I mentioned there are 6 or 8 families in my message. Um those would be families like the, the the Rothschilds, the Queen Beatrice from the Netherlands, uh, other bloodlines of of the you know the, the Satanic Luciferians going way back. The best resource on that, and I talk about this by the way in the new book. I make a reference to Fritz Springmeier's uh, book, Worldwide Evil and Misery, where he talks about the you know thirteen uh, Satanic. Uh, you know, world leaders and, and, and bloodlines, 13 satanic bloodlines. And so I would refer you to that book for more details. But it's it goes all the way back to, you know, ancient times when Satan's earthly co-conspirators have been trying to take over uh, the world. So good question. appreciate you reaching out. Um, here is a question Um uh, about the treaty in Daniel 9.27, this I answered this actually at a recent prophecy night, uh, so I, I think it might have been last Tuesday, so I encourage you to check that out for more detail, but I'll give a quick answer here. They point out that Daniel nine twenty seven doesn't mention Israel, so how do we know this is a covenant with Israel? Well, it's quite clear from the context. The whole four hundred ninety year plan, the seventy weeks prophecy, is for Israel. Daniel says it's for. Gabriel told Daniel that it's for his people and his holy city. So it's 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 Israel's, you know, prophecy, and God's going to protect them by having this alliance with all these nations that the future Antichrist kind of arranges and signs this treaty and then of course he's going to break that treaty but there's no question that it is uh, a treaty between Israel and all these other nations to guarantee their uh, safety Um, here's a question can any born-again Christian cast out demons today Uh, so that's a great question you know uh, obviously I've talked about this in my Tuesday night series that we just f- finished. Uh, I did a couple sessions on uh, d- d- demon possession and demon influence. Um, over the years, you know, demon exorcism has kind of become, uh, you know, formulaic. And the Roman Catholic Church taught, you know, about exorcism and that it was only certain people that could do it and certain priests, and you would hire an exorcist, so so to speak. I don't believe the Bible teaches any of that. I believe our spir- struggle is spiritual. Uh, you know, some conservative, dispensationalist, unfortunately, think there's no such thing as demon possession today. I could not disagree more strongly. I think we're seeing an upsurge in demon influence, demon activity, and that things are heating up in heaven even more than they're heating up in the heavenlies, I should say, even more than they're heating up on earth. Uh, and so I would say that any believer can engage in the, and should engage in that uh, spiritual uh, w- warfare. We should run towards the roar. You know, we're, we're supposed to do battle uh, in the in the spiritual realm. And so I think if you follow the practices that we see spelled out in Scripture, and I talk about these uh, recently in that uh, Tuesday night series, such as proclaiming Scripture the way Jesus did when he dealt with the prince of demons himself, Satan, in the wilderness, such as naming the name of Jesus, demons hate The name of jesus then i think yeah any uh believer uh can can do battle now it's it's a serious thing and if you're dealing with a full-blown demon possession it's not something you should trifle with and just you know go in ill-prepared it needs to be a strong mature believer that knows the word of god and is prepared to deal with this unseen enemy but i don't think it's limited to certain occupations or certain uh, credentialed people in any sense um Let's see. Uh, this is a, a really heart-wrenching uh, email from someone who's got some a couple of brothers that don't know the Lord, and they've shared the gospel with them many times, and they completely reject it, and she sent them a Bible. They sent the Bible back. Uh, should she keep continuing to share the gospel with them? Well, first of all, the, you know, yes, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. You cannot argue someone into salvation, but you can certainly continue to let the gospel do its work. So I wouldn't you know, provoke them. They know what you believe, so I wouldn't keep hammering them with it. You know, the greatest book ever written on evangelism was a book by Lewis Berry Chafer. It was called simply Evangelism. But it's really a book about prayer, if you read it. Uh, and it's it's that's what evangelism comes down to. So I would pray uh, for your brothers here and then let the gospel do its work. In fact, let me just pause right now. Uh, I feel led to just pray for, uh, for your brother. So uh, if you're listening to this podcast, just pray with me. Lord, I lift up these two uh, men. I don't know much about the situation, don't know how old they are. But I know that they've rejected the gospel. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit would get a hold of them, bring someone across their path even today that would clearly articulate the gospel and that the gospel would pierce their hearts and help them recognize their sin and their need for a Savior and that today might be the day they trust in you. And for this lady, I pray, Lord, that you just calm her heart, help her to just leave them in your hands, continue to pray for them earnestly that they might come to the faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Here's a question about geoengineering and global warming. The person says... uh you know, if I'm understanding you right, this is them saying that to me. If I'm understanding you right, then the uh, globalists have the ability to manufacture and steer hurricanes. Absolutely, no question about it. They've been doing this for decades. We have patents about it. We have open discussions about it. We have congressional hearings about it. They're doing it all the time. Uh, Other countries have open, you know, weather warfare offices and weather manipulation offices. And so, uh, you know, it's it's called weather warfare, or weather whiplash. That's why we have so many amazing, unprecedented weather events right now. It's because they're up there toying with the atmosphere like mad scientists. And, you know, LBJ mentioned uh, years ago when he was vice president under Kennedy, he who controls the weather controls the world. And that's what these Luciferians are trying to do. So this person wants to know, is is the part of the reason for this geoengineering that they are uh, – You know, using the Hegelian dialectic, which is problem, reaction, solution. I've talked about it. I talk about it again in this new book, Spirit of the False Prophet. But that's just a technique that goes back to Friedrich Hegel, uh, in which you want to get the public to to come along and do something. So you create a problem for which the solution is this goal that you want. So that they cry out, hey, let us do this. And you get what you want all along. But it's easier to get them to do it if they see it as a solution to their own problem. Uh, And so, yeah, I think that's part of it. But I think the, the, you know they're, they're creating problems and saying we need uh, you know a solution that's really what is allowing them now to openly tamper with the atmosphere and spray me- metal nanoparticulates in the air uh, they denied it for years and i was mocked for you know pointing it out and talking about it even though i had plenty of evidence to prove it uh, but now they they've come right out and admitted it in fact, Biden just made an announcement a few weeks ago about it, and the pretext is global warming. So that's a classic Hegelian dialectic. the world is we're, we're destroying the world. We've got to protect us from the sun's rays, and so let's spray these metal particulates in the air, and that will protect us. But that's really not what it's about. They they wanted to be able to more openly do this uh, tampering with the weather and the, and the atmosphere, and so they needed a pretext to do it. But yeah, I think there's a lot going on there. It's part of a depopulation agenda. We don't even know what all... It's about actually. Uh, I this next question. I've been listening to your prophecy nights, and you refer to some dates in Daniel. I've in my study uh, found that there's some debates around the dates. Well, there's there's only a debate one debate that I. Well, I guess there are a couple of debates. So uh, the date of the decree of Artaxerxes, there's two dates out there, but one of them is by far more universally held. That's the date that Harold Honer has given. That's the source for these dates. He was the preeminent scholar on dating the apostolic age and really connecting the dots. He's got a A little book out. Uh, He's with the Lord now. He died not too long ago. I had him 30 years ago in seminary, but he's world expert in all of this. His book is called "Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ." If you want to check that out, but even if you go with the alternative date for the decree of Artaxerxes, it doesn't change the the overall premise of of the chart that I gave in Proverbs tonight, which is that you know. 173,880 days after the decree, whatever date you use, we arrive at the time of Christ. And that's what's amazing to show the, the accuracy of Daniel's prophecy. Uh, the only other date that is sometimes debated is the date for the birth of Christ. Some people will put it uh, older, like 7-6 or 6-5 B.C., that winter. We know he was born in the winter Uh and uh, I don't have time to make the whole case for the, all of all of this, but we know Herod was alive when Christ, uh, was born because he issued that edict to try to kill all the babies two years and younger. We also know historically, uh, without question, that 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 uh, Herod died in four in April of four B.C. So Jesus had to be born before that. So that's why most scholars say he was born in the winter of you know say December of five B.C. Anytime into January, February, March of four B.C. Uh, I know some scholars that think he might have been born the previous year, and they get that because it would have taken longer for the magi to get all the way from babylon you know to bethlehem Uh, but that's speculative um I think that the date uh, of 54 B.C. makes the most sense, uh, you know, which means, and we know for a fact that he died in 33 A.D. uh, So that means he was 37 years old, give or take, when he died, contrary to what most people assume that he was 33 because they think he was born in zero. You know, we have the B.C. and A.D. calendar now, but the problem is when we came up with that dating system, we, we, we missed it by a few years. You know, we didn't have good record keeping back then. So, yeah, uh, thanks for that question. Uh, Just a couple more here. Uh, Ephesians 4, 8. I've addressed this before, but I'll go ahead and address it briefly again uh, real quickly. But uh, this has to do with, you know, what did, you know, Jesus supposedly do when he descended to Hades, you know, during the three days that he was in the grave. Um, This comes from 1 Peter 3, uh, 18 and 19. Let me call it up on my screen here, so I'll have both passages, uh, where it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Uh, so who are those spirits in prison? Well, I think in the context, especially because he brings up Noah and so forth, uh, and Peter also in Second Peter, talks about those fallen angels who left their proper domain and that sort of thing. I think um, Jesus went to Sheol, the grave, to preach bad news to the fallen angels, the, the sons of God from Genesis 6, namely that he had broken the power of the evil spirits, and spirits almost always refers in Scripture to uh, angels. And so I think that's what's going on in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 18. But back to Ephesians 4, 8, which this person asks about, we read, therefore he says, by the way, the context in Ephesians is the uh, spiritual gifts in the church and he says therefore he says when he ascended on high he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men he's quoting david's psalm 68:18 there and then paul writer of ephesians adds a parenthetical statement in verse 9 and he says in parentheses now this he ascended which he had just quoted from psalm 68:18 What does that mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So there are basically three ways that this passage has been interpreted, you know, descending into the lower parts, namely the earth, that basically referring to Christ's incarnation. That's the way I take it there. He's contrasting here the ascension and the descension. Um. He first came to the earth, he died, he rose again, and now he's ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And that's what's going on with Psalm 68, uh, 18, David's psalm there. He's talking about Christ uh, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, the throne in waiting. Uh, and, and, and essentially, we see other passages like Psalm 110 and Psalm uh, 2, where it sort of speaks proleptically of that time when Christ will take the messianic throne, which is on earth, which he has not taken yet, but he's the rightful heir to it. And in that sense, he's led uh, captivity uh, captive. And so, you know, that that's that's my understanding of it. I don't think uh, but I understand good people disagree. They, they might think that he somehow let out of prison these saved people who were in a holding tank or, or something like that. And, and the good people hold that view. I, I respect it. I just don't take the text in question that way. A uh, great question from uh, my friend Scott. I'll mention his name. I know he won't mind it uh, there in Nevada. But he uh, he wants to know how, we, you know, we, we've we t- talked before about how every age there God has a people group. Uh, sort of uh, rep, his representatives, if you will, on earth. And so, for example, it was Adam and Eve in the garden. It was Noah and his family. It was Abraham. It was the Jewish people, uh, it, Moses and so forth. It was. It's the church today. It's going to be the 144,000 during the tribulation, the Jewish witnesses. But he says, since there's a significant gap between the rapture and the start of the tribulation, so remember, the rapture happens. Then sometime after that, the tribulation starts with the signing of the treaty that we talked about a moment ago. During that gap of time, who are God's representatives? Well, uh, first of all, I would point out, Scott, that the the notion of a representative remnant in each age is a description in Scripture. We don't have a thus saith the Lord, you know, there is this group in each age. We're just reading biblical history and and. Seeing what's obvious. So, I think we can do the same thing with that gap of time. Presumably, right after the rapture, there will be many people that get saved, probably moments after, people who had heard the gospel before the rapture. And then uh, when they see the rapture happen, they'll connect the dots and they'll realize, oh boy, uh, the Bible is true. Christ is the King. He's rescued the church. I need to believe in Him for salvation. Uh, it'll be very difficult to get saved if you reject the gospel before the rapture once the tribulation starts because the deception will reach unprecedented heights once the antichrist is on the throne but during that gap of time between the rapture and the start of the tribulation i think there will be many 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 people who come to faith very quickly after the rapture and so they're they're god's representatives during that time god's people christians who've gotten saved after the rapture but before the tribulation starts all right last question um uh, this is a question about Genesis 6-4 and the Nephilim. It wouldn't be an episode of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions without at least one reference to the Nephilim. So we've answered this question a lot, but certainly don't mind answering it again as we pick up new Uh, listeners. But Genesis 6, 4 plainly says that there were Nephilim in the days before the flood and also after the flood. And since the flood destroyed everybody but Noah's family, how do you explain that? Well, remember the Nephilim were the hybrid offspring of the fallen angels who cohabited with the earthly women and produced a race of giants called Nephilim uh, who are part human and part demon or part fallen angel. Uh, therefore they can shapeshift in my view and, and take on human physical corporeal form, or they can take on spiritual form. So my view is they rose above uh, the flood waters and then after the flood waters receded, they came back to earth. There are other plausible views that you know make sense to me that could be right uh, theologically. One of them is the physical aspect, the physical bodies of these Nephilim perished in the flood. But the disembodied spirits survived, and that's what became demons. So demons, in that view, are separate from fallen angels, a separate class of celestial evil being. Um, That's very possible. In that view, uh, according to that view, Nephilim don't have the shape-shifting ability to take on physical or human form. They're either one or the other. They were in their physical form. And then when the physical bodies died, the, the spiritual realm, form, rose above the floodwaters and survived, but then it remains a spiritual form. But I, I take it more that they had the ability as hybrids to kind of take on either form and therefore they took on a form that allowed them to survive the flood, but then re-emerged after the flood in physical form. But there's another alternative, too, and this person kind of alludes to this. They say, did the fallen angels continue to do the same thing after the flood? Well, that's very possible. Now, the actual fallen angels that did the first incursion and created the Nephilim originally, they certainly didn't do it anymore because they were locked up in prison, as the New Testament tells us, and they're in prison permanently in Tartarus, awaiting the final judgment in a lake of fire but it's it's possible that other fallen angels followed in their footsteps and committed the same atrocious sin of leaving their proper domain and cohabiting uh, with women and in which case you would still have more nephilim being produced so all of those things are possible uh, all we can say with certainty is that there were nephilim after the flood and there are nephilim uh, therefore uh, today Well, that's the end of this episode of Dr. Hickson Answers Your Questions. I hope some of that was helpful and encouraging. Thanks for listening. Um, I want to remind you again about the book and the video promo. Go to notbyworks.org and scroll through the highlight banners there on our homepage, and you'll see, I think, in the third spot, the one-minute promotional video about Spirit of the False Prophet. Spread that around. Let people know. We want to put that book in as many hands as possible. If you haven't ordered yours yet, you can go to spiritofthefalseprophet.org. Spiritofthefalseprophet.org. Go ahead and order it. Books will begin shipping here in the next one uh, to two weeks. We've already approved the proof. In fact, I've got it in my hands. If you were uh, watching a video instead of an audio here, uh, I could hold it up for you. But uh, we're waiting on our inventory to arrive. As soon as it arrives, uh, we will start shipping out those orders. So thanks so much for listening. Uh, God bless you, everyone. Have a great holiday weekend, or at least today anyway, and then a great rest of the week. God bless.